Hello again, dear listener. This, I'd like to take a moment to confirm, is the start of the show. Welcome to Fine, a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on January 30th, 2018 at the Lido, which is on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, or Vancouver, BC. You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Stephanie Ling, Shashi Bhatt, Amber Harper-Young, and Daniel Zomparelli. And throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Summering, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. I'd suggest it, they rule. The track we've started the show with today is called L-A-F-K. All those letters are capitalized. Just wanted you to know that. And I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. Let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. actually have some news that I wanted to share with everyone tonight, and it's surprisingly fitting that I can share this with you on the one-year anniversary of the show, because I am happy to admit that I have sold out. I've sold out. I've sold out for that paper, which is a traditional one-year anniversary gift, so everything is coming together. Please let me explain what I mean when I say I sold out is that I found a new way to monetize my writing. And that, that's what I do for a living at the moment, and it's not, it's not easy. And uh, I found a new way to make money from it, and it's not, it's not for everyone. Um, I have sold a little bit of myself, but you got to do what you got to do. Um, and essentially, the business model I've adopted in selling myself out is that of the bodybuilders of Instagram. <laughs> and if you've ever looked at the Instagram page of a bodybuilder with upwards of five to 10,000 followers, at somewhere in the frame of all of their photos and videos, there will be, well, I should describe these photos and videos. They got their squats, they got their, their dumbbell curls, they got their pectoral thrusters, and somewhere, that's an actual exercise, and somewhere, in the frame of those photos and videos, there will be like a, a bottle of organic protein powder or like a, a bottle of like a five-hour energy enema solution. <laughs> and what that is, is it's a paid, pro oh, sorry, paid product placement. And that's ingenious. It's an ingenious way for these bodybuilders to make money doing what they love. <laughs> exactly. Which is working towards getting incredibly toned and sculpted asses which is what I want for my writing. <laughs> so what I've done essentially by adopting this model is I have these stories that I pitch out to various companies and I'm like, hey, we can post this on social media somewhere and I'll mention your product somewhere within. It'll be subtle, it won't take the reader out of the story itself, but it will remind the reader that your product exists and it's just a new interesting way for this company to advertise their product and a new interesting way for me to get some money in the goddamn bank. Yes. And I have a sample of this that I'm gonna share with you tonight. Um, I pitched a story to a company, sold it to them a couple days ago, and we worked together and I'm, pr I'm pretty happy about it. 
Um, essentially, we put it on Twitter. I printed out a 22-tweet Twitter thread, which I'm going to read for you tonight. And uh, yeah, this is, this is my new business venture. And the story is actually, it's a, it's a true story uh, about my family in Poland in the late 1800s, and I'm sure they would really appreciate me being able to make money off of their long deceased memories. <laughs> my great-great-great-grandfather was a blacksmith. His name was Marcin. He specialized in crafting steel horseshoes and rivets. His rivets were especially well-regarded. They were well-regarded then, well-regarded now. Seven likes, two retweets. In 1873, he and the handful of men working in a small foundry were even awarded a contract from the Warsaw City government to be the sole rivet provider in the construction of the Citadel Rail Bridge, for which his rivets received even further acclaim, in addition to these five likes. So much so that after the Russians eventually blew up the Citadel Rail Bridge as they hightailed it from the Germans during the Great Retreat in 1915, the occupying Germans renewed the previous contract when they began reconstruction of the bridge. I mean, it was under duress, but that's still pretty cool. And while he was proud of his work and the money and the plaudits kept him fed, horseshoes and rivets were in his true passion. That belonged to music. Marcin was a skilled, natural musician. His thick, uneven fingers, blistered and shorn from a lifetime spent in the foundry, moved deftly and fearlessly over trumpet valves and violin strings. He even created his own instruments. Can you hear my pasties? I can hear them in my head and it's so distracting right now. He even created his own instruments. Molten brass rushing to fill custom molds that would become tubas, trombones, and French horns. But the appeal of the common string and brass families didn't last long for Marcin. He began to experiment, first by making hybrids like the trombolin, a trombone slash violin love child, and the two bar, a tuba slash guitar bastardization. Then eventually he pushed things into a more Seussian realm, trumpets with two, three, and four bells sprouting from its lead pipe like clover, each one delivering a different octave. Three-person saxophones whose necks split like a hydra, allowing for a trio of players to compete over its many, many keys. Or the brigandine bugle, a bugle whose mouthpiece trailed down into a spiraling neck that coiled itself around the musician's body, its horn ultimately protruding somewhere around the player's navel region. And that series of four tweets, great engagement, an average of eight likes, four retweets each, not bad. These are what Marcin loved to build and use. He even enlisted those working his foundry into a strange, tired, and nearly competent orchestra, practicing after hours and performing at the occasional wedding of whoever would tolerate them. The sight of the small brigade of men grappling with their bizarre, wheezing brass sculptures unsettling, second only to the sound they made. In 1875, as the first iteration of the Citadel Rail Bridge neared completion, Marcin used the popularity of his rivets as leverage to convince the city to let his orchestra, which he'd named the Foundry Fathers, to play at the ribbon-cutting ceremony. 
I guess wordplay played a lot better back then. I enjoyed that. So did my Twitter followers. Five retweets, eight likes. And according to a generational game of telephone, starting with my great-great-great-grandmother, after the Foundry Fathers' performance, the president of Warsaw, Socrates Sternikowitz, jokingly, that's his real name, jokingly encouraged them to put the new bridge to use by jumping off of it. Funny guy. Unfortunately, the Germans weren't as humorous or accommodating as Socrates. In 1917, as the reconstruction of the Citadel Rail Bridge neared completion, the occupying German government in Warsaw denied Marcin's request to have his ragtag orchestra play the opening ceremony. He and the community were crushed, but there wasn't anything they could do. In small, silent protest, my then 62-year-old great-great-great-grandfather slinked out into the night, scaled the bridge, and used his at Swiss Army knife, model 1908, the classic, simple, sleek design, newly reissued for 2018, learn more at SwissArmy.com, to carve the Foundry Fathers into one of its steel girders. The following years were tumultuous for Poland. It's my favorite line. The Germans... The Germans left and a Polish state was officially declared, but political turmoil followed for decades before another eventual invasion by the Germans and Russians during World War II. Then in 1944, the bridge was blown up again, this time by retreating Germans. Marcin wasn't alive to see it crumble once more into the Vistula River, having died shortly before the war began, but in a sense, he was all of it that remained. The lone span of bridge that stood proud in the middle of the Vistula reached out over its waters towards the shore with a single girder. That girder held together by Marcin's rivets. That girder holding his words. The Foundry Fathers. Hashtag paid content. Thank you for listening to that. That's my latest business venture. Let's move on with the show. Up first, we have Stephanie Ling wonderful writer who works as a curator at Vivo Media Arts Center and frequents the Cinematheque and other air-conditioned spaces. Her books are Cuts of Thin Meat from Spare Room in 2015 and NASCAR from Blank Check in 2016. Both of those are awesome. And she's currently developing her second short play. Here's Stephanie. This poem is called Relic. You left me alone with our olives and honeydew. Some people started a conversation next to me, too close to me. Some people didn't, someone didn't show up for work today. I hope you have an understanding teammate. They disperse for a smoke in a sanctioned sour patch, and I want one. But I'd rather cautiously exhale out your window later. You have purchased the wine by now, I'm sure. But I get the feeling you've run into someone in the wine store, and so you have. Unfortunately, the head of the writer has never been found, declared the poet you walked out with. I'm embarrassed about our grocery list of vices that complements the company we keep. That's realism, baby. I told you not to call people baby, but I'm still yours, you relic. You don't have to do that. <laughs> um, this poem is called Mood Ring. Tonight, one of my friends will be sad. 
I'm not in the mood, but I'm a friend. Maybe I will find myself in the mood. Probably will. As I prefer to do something rather than nothing. Especially if I can't even say what I am in, if not the mood, within the mood, out of the mood, maybe in nothing in particular to say, sorry, you are sad, but I am outside. It makes no sense, leaning over the border of the mood. Here I am, outside the mood, trying to get in because you are sad today. This is the longish first of three poems. <laughs> it's called, I Have Never Been Eloquent. The bagel she had that morning was like wrapped with the sticker that said, you look good today. And she was like, you're a bagel, but thanks. <laughs> Later, she ran into a friend and was like, you look nice today, and she really did. Her friend was like, well, rested, and her clothes like fit, but some, but she like, she was like, I work soon, and I need a snack. And she was like, do you want some of this bagel? And her friend was thinking about it for a sec, but then was like, you're a good friend, but I'm like not that hungry, and fluttered towards her shift that was going to start in something like two hours. And the crosswalk was like, time to walk. So she just like went, and her eyes drifted into the window of a store where the displays were like really good, and the plastic headless people were like storied and glamorous and difficult to relate to, and she liked it that way. So she was like, the windows have really gone downhill lately, and the plastic people and the two-dimensional clothing were like, it's not our fault she went back to school. <laughs> <laughs> And she was like, if it doesn't work out, I'll tell everyone I'm well and nothing else. And everything was like, and everyone was like, I believe you. And then her phone was like, ring. And then it was like, I give up. And she was like, and listened to her plan to surrender his task to someone else. And then her umbrella was like open. And she was like, on her way to help him untangle his stupid headphones at her place. And she was like, okay, give it here, and started untangling his headphones because he had like lost all the feeling in his hands from earlier attempts in the cold. And then he was like removing receipts from his wallet, and they were like uncrumpled and limp proof of this and that unnecessary and necessary thing from here and there. And his wallet like breathed a sigh of relief. And she was like, always somewhat impressed that he kept his wallet thin and was like mindful of what he put in and took out and she like realized it was dark outside and started turning the clocks forward to match the light and he was like what time is it and she was like i don't know yet and then his wallet was like oh and then he was like moved to the couch and his feet were like up and his face was like resting and his face was like almost drooping like so relaxed it could have been offensive to the really really tired and his thumb was like flick and then he was like my phone says it's 7 18 p.m and she looked out, like outside again and said, no, I don't think so. <clears throat> and he was like, you don't have to have the answer for everything. And then he was like, what is it? What is this, the dark ages? And she was like, several plants have died since you started coming over. <laughs> and then he was like, we have the most nuanced conversations. And they were like already bored of antagonizing each other, but his mind was able to arrive comfortably at the memory of paintings he saw earlier that week. And they were like about labor and 
process and fuzz. And he was like, yeah, I like that. But he was like generalizing and content to, and her eyes were like grazing a flyer for some furniture she can't afford, but they keep stuffing the coated paper under her door anyway. She was like lingering on a chair that was beautiful and rumored to be like quite uncomfortable. And then a patch of skin under her poly cotton blouse, blouse was like irritated. And then her scratching was like audible. And he was like, why doesn't she smile anymore? And then he like felt love and didn't have anywhere to go. And she was like about to boil over in opinions, but then got up to do laundry while his thumb was like flick. And then he was like suddenly boiling water because she was like always boiling water and sometimes didn't even do anything with it. Then she was like in the hall pressing the button over and over again and the elevator was like, wait. And she was like, I am an impatient pedestrian. And then she and her dirty laundry were like three floors down where the room was like, sorry, all full. And then she was like, I don't even have the right change and why don't I smile anymore? Then the water upstairs was like boiled and she was like already driving to the bank that's within walking distance. Then she like goes up to the teller and he's like, hey lady. And she's like, hey dude. And like asked for one roll of quarters and one roll of loonies and the teller was like, I've seen this before. And she was like, originality is hard. And he was like, I'm a bank teller. <laughs> and her eyes were like resting and his unironic jackered tie that was like, take me seriously. And it was like shiny and his hair was like shiny too. And then she thought about her car and the teller saw her mind going from her tie to his hair to her car and was like, I'm a bank teller. And she was like, you were always a bank teller, weren't you? And he was like, yes. And she was like, I'm sorry. And he was like, let me know how I did today. <laughs> And she was like, that's a big question and we don't really know each other. And then she was like getting into her car before he realized what she meant. And he, and she like put the money on the dash where the loonies and the quarters were back and forth on the dash and she was like watching the revolutions and she turned the corner. And the guy stepping off the crosswalk was like, I'm walking here and she was like, I don't wanna die. So her seatbelt was like click and she was like watching certain things but not others. And she was like, you weren't always a loony, were you? And the loony was like, I used to be a 20. And she was like, all cash must have had past lives as larger or smaller denominations. <laughs> but one of the quarters was like, not me. I've always been a quarter. And she was like, I will break you. And the quarter was like, I'm a quarter. And then she was like, I resent facts and already bored of antagonizing in general. And then he was like, I've never asked for much more than a fraction of your attention span that you would normally supply to draping a napkin on your lap or like untangling headphones. And she was like, here. And his headphones were like, fine. And he was like, I just felt like a third wheel. And she was like, what? And he was like, laundry. And she was like, phone. And he was like, all the cool shit in the world wouldn't keep you close to me. And she was like, not really, and touched the kettle. And the kettle was like lukewarm to the touch. And she was like, I want to have the slowest of slow mornings. And he was like, glacial. And she was like, yes, but not cold. And she was like, you know, you were never a bank teller, were you? And he was like, no. And she was like, I believe you.
Next up, we have Shashi Bhatt. Her short fiction has appeared in the Malahat Review, Prism International, The Journey Prize Stories 24, Event, The New Quarterly, Grain, and other publications. Her novel, The Family Took Shape, is one of three finalists for the Thomas Riddell Atlantic Fiction Prize. Shashi is the editor of Event Magazine and teaches creative writing at Douglas College. Here she is. Hi guys, uh, I'm going to be reading an excerpt from a short story called The Most Precious Substance on Earth. Uh, the main character is a girl who's in grade 10. She plays the oboe and she is fiercely passionate about her high school concert band. The Most Precious Substance on Earth. We are on our way to Music Fest and we're going to win. Everyone can feel it. The band has a hive mind on the airplane from Halifax to Toronto. We're humming an electric rendition of First Suite in E-flat, the woodwinds tooting out in forceful staccato as we begin the second movement. Bandmates in the adjacent row thrum on their trays. I lick my lips in preparation for my elegiac solo, but the conductor tells us to stop because we're disturbing the other passengers. He reminds us that musicianship is more than talent. At 10 a.m., the ratio of parents to band members at the Halifax airport was nearly two to one. My mom befriended and exchanged numbers with the other Indian mom, while my dad struck up eager conversations with the teachers and confirmed for the second time that boys and girls would stay in separate areas of the hotel. Amy rolled in with a crimson suitcase, shiny and hard like it had a candy coating. Her mom waved at me and then went to Clearwater to buy a live packaged lobster. Eunice's parents were the only ones who didn't bother parking, so Eunice wandered in looking up bewilderedly at the signs listing departure gates until she finally saw us. She'd never been on an airplane before or to the airport. Corinne, who usually wore raver pants, was today not wearing raver pants. Her family all had the same dark bowl cut, which felt revelatory because Corinne's hair was the color of lilacs and defied shape. And I just realized I forgot to mention this is set in the 90s, so there's some like 90s references. <laughs> but when the parents left, it was just the 43 of us in our green band sweaters, like a teenage evergreen forest had cropped up in the airport lobby. Each sweater has a treble clef embroidered on the right breast. When we put them on, it's like on Captain Planet, when the five teens flash laser beams out of the magical rings they wear, combining their powers to summon up Captain Planet from wherever he usually is. I've never actually seen that show, so I don't know what happens after that. But with the Platinum Band, it's like we turn into Platinum and become this unstoppable force of concert band music. I start working on a woodwind arrangement of Bohemian Rhapsody with Eunice and Corinne, who were sitting behind me. Corinne's hair rises above her seat in a glorious froth. Amy is asleep on my shoulder. She also plays the oboe. Yes, there are two of us oboe players, but she doesn't have much of a band attendance record, so I don't exactly know why she's here. She wakes up and yawns and checks her new bangs in a compact mirror. She pulls her reading material, last week's Time magazine, out of the seat pocket. On the cover, two teenagers smile in their school photos. Framing them are the headshots of the 13 people they killed. Only the killers are shown in color. 
Eunice passes Bohemian Rhapsody over to me, and I pencil in a key signature before Amy interrupts with a whisper. Did you know Eunice was voted most likely to shoot up the school? Shut up, she's sitting behind us, I respond. Even worse, she's sharing a room with us, says Amy, and goes back to her magazine. There is a rumor that when the yearbook staff collected anonymous suggestions for most likely two statements to list under everyone's photos, they received an overwhelming number indicating that Eunice Lamb, Lamb was a dangerous character with access to guns. The faculty advisor didn't let them print this, obviously, so next to her name in the yearbook, it says, most likely to build a successful dot-com company. It is clear to anyone who has ever spoken to Eunice that she would feel infinitely comfortable, more comfortable holding a flute than any kind of weapon. Eunice is the youngest person in the band. She's been taking private lessons forever, so was let into the platinum band a year earlier than is typical. She's the kind of person a teacher would miss in a headcount. She talks incessantly about her private lessons and sometimes disagrees with our conductor on things like whether the timpani is in tune, which is uncomfortable for everyone. One time our history class visited the Alexander Graham Bell Museum in Cape Breton and she lagged behind taking photos of the info plaques. She carries a purple journal that has a tiny heart-shaped lock on it, like the kind your aunt buys for your birthday when you turn seven. If Eunice was more interesting, somebody would have stolen, photocopied, and distributed it by now. Amy turns to me. So look, when we're supposed to be touring the concert hall tomorrow, I'll go meet up with my cousin and bring the stuff back for us. She mimes smoking a joint. So this is why she came. Over, spring, uh, over March break, Amy took a family trip to Vancouver and came back a stoner. She smuggled some weed back inside a hollowed out jar of peanut butter, which is apparently a thing people from Vancouver do all the time. She's never offered me any until now. For the month or so her supply lasted, every time she phoned me she'd be listening to Radiohead and telling me obscure memories from her childhood, like the time she tried to whittle an anatomical heart out of a bar of her mother's triple milled French soap. I remember so much when I'm high, Nina, she says, and then forgets to practice for our group biology project on macrophages. The hotel we'll be staying in is conveniently located for her plan. It's in downtown Toronto, a 15-minute walk from Roy Thompson Hall, which to the Platinum Band is like this mythical place, because when instructing the band to be quiet, the conductor repeatedly reminds us of the time he heard the Toronto Symphony Orchestra perform there. And during a long rest, it was so silent and the acoustics so sharp, he could hear the ecstatic sigh of a woman on the other side of the hall. When I started playing the oboe, it took me three months before I could make a sound. I was 11 and what came out was just tortured air. I'd soaked the damn reed for hours, but I still didn't entirely know what embouchure meant. The only reason I was playing the oboe was that my dad had purchased it at a second-hand store, mistaking it for a clarinet. A year into playing it, I managed a B-flat scale. Two years in, my dad invested in private lessons with this Russian woman named Irina or Alina or Galina. I'm still not totally sure. She sighed passive-aggressively, which must have been a crucial teaching tool, because three years in, I was researching how to make my own reeds and growing enraged when people referred to my oboe as a clarinet. Four years in, this year, I auditioned for the Sir William Alexander High School Platinum Band. 
The platinum band was originally called the gold band, but then a new conductor came in and explained to us that platinum was the most precious and rare substance on Earth. This is actually false. Platinum is surpassed by 12 other substances, including diamonds, rhino horns, and meth. <laughs> Why not the diamond band, a trombonist asked, but the conductor took it as a rhetorical. This is what we did to get here. 60 mornings of our bleary winter-coated parents shoveling out their cars in the blue dark to get us into our seats four minutes before the 6 a.m. start of rehearsal. 62-hour rehearsals, me sitting second row with a trumpet player behind, emptying a spit valve on the squelchy carpet, and a piccolo player drawing fancy cats on my sheet music, which we would furiously erase before turning the pages in at the end of the semester. 60 twice-weekly mornings that began and ended with the sound of noodling instruments and clacking cases and the conductor yelling, quiet, please. 50 or more afternoons of solo practice in a rehearsal room coated with soundproofing the color of a dried sea sponge, of feeling around those walls for a light switch, of playing until fingers turned arthritic, of leaving that room to face the rest of school life, so empty of music and sometimes so unbearably bleak. Two semesters of classic high school concert band repertoire. Gustav Holst, Ralph Vaughan Williams, a medley of film music from five years ago. Jurassic Park, The Wiz, Wayne's World. A medley of the conductor's favorite bands. Chicago, The Beatles, Night Ranger. An up-tempo 70s hit, plus the required performance songs, Pomp and Circumstance, and the National Anthem. Also, two fundraising car washes in the parking lot of the funeral home next to the school. One in frigid April, stalactite icicles dripping from the rims of our buckets, our wet hands raw as winter. One gingerbread house the Music Council co-presidents built to raffle off at the Holiday Harmonies concert, intended as a gabled Christmassy Victorian, but in truth more crooked mansion. 43 sets of parents opening their wallets, signing permission forms. This is the first time I've played in a band that is mostly in tune, and where members share obscure jokes from the humiliating skits they've performed at assemblies, or about the time the conductor accidentally told the flutes to finger their parts. One morning during rehearsal, I took my mouth away from my oboe to sneeze in the middle of ease on down the road, and saw the whole band's shoulders and heads moving in unison like a controlled wave, Trumpets raised their bells and blared, tapped their toes, 86 eyes fixed on the slash of eighth notes that sprinted toward the end of the page, the conductor shouting down numbers over us as his baton drew violent figure eights. When I put my teeth back over the reed, my shoulders latched into the rhythm with everyone else's, and I had this feeling, like when you're running suicides in gym class, endorphins plus breathlessness blurring into euphoria. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Up next, we have a mighty talented comedian who, in her own words, has accomplished a thing in comedy that'll impress you, plus another thing that you wouldn't know how to recognize as anything, so don't even worry about it. She's been around a while and telling jokes for part of that while. She's okay. I think she's awesome. Here she is, Amber Harper Young. She's coming! Hey! 
just quit smoking. I like to show it off right off the top. Good. You guys have jobs? <laughs> One person, cool. <laughs> Sounds like Vancouver. I've had some crummy jobs in the past. I have a really great one now. Right now I work in the downtown east side. I feel actually good about, you know, what I'm doing uh, with my life for once. Like, I've never felt like a contributing member of society before. Like, not, like, this job doesn't help, you know. <laughs> I've also been a barista. Has anyone done that? Yeah? Yeah. Makes sense. There's, like, 53,000 coffee shops in Vancouver. Um, I was making this drink once. It was called Americano Misto, or it's still called that, actually. And there was this regular. He was chatting with us at the bar because we're trapped. We have no choice. And... uh this drink is hot water, a shot of espresso, and steam milk. And he went, ooh, misto horny. Yeah, this is a true story. And then he said, sorry, probably everyone says that. <laughs> and we were like, no, nobody says that. And this is why we march. <laughs> Did you guys do the march? You do it on Saturday? One guy nodding his head, cool. Yeah, I guess there was pretty good turnout. You know, I didn't go, I didn't, just asking. Um, so I've also had a job working as a strip club waitress, hold your applause. I worked in two different adult entertainment venues for eight years, back to back. That's weird when you look back on it, it's okay. It's fine if anyone here perceives that I'm some kind of closet lesbian nympho, but I'm just looking for my dad. <laughs> I would really walk around the club and be like, Dad? Dad? Dudes would be like, oh my God, and die behind curtains and hide under tables. <laughs> Dance just to blend in. Ooh. <laughs> Papa? Papa, can you hear me? Is a song I would calmly request from the DJs there. <laughs> That's my mom. <laughs> I have, I'm in this really weird place in my life right now where um, like I think I have to start thinking about if I want kids or not because I'm pregnant. Just joking, you guys have been pranked. That's a pregnancy prank. I do it to my boyfriend. He hates it <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Does anyone have kids here? No, I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah, how would you be out on a Monday night? Forget it. I've never given birth, but I have sneezed out my tampon. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> I'm the sneeze shaky lady from that poem. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if I want kids. I don't think like, I don't think I want kids, but I wake up in the morning, my body's very hormonal right now. I wake up, my body's like, baby, baby. It's like trying to make a, a <laughs> A kid with whoever, it doesn't care. Like I'm checking out every guy on the street, even the old ones, like nice walker. 
something's wrong. And I think, like, I don't like kids. Like, that's probably why I don't want them. Um, one reason why I don't like them, though, is because, uh, you know, a certain couple instances, right? Like, this one time I was at my sister's wedding. She's my older sister. She's a very soft-spoken, sweet, introverted person. She's about to say her vows to her soulmate. When this kid named Michael wearing a button-up and Skechers, already disgusting, <laughs> came trampling through the wedding with a handful of Doritos. Who brings Doritos to a wedding? <laughs> anyway, not really a joke, just some kid I hate a lot. <laughs> I wake up in the night like, Michael! <laughs> But then I get confused because my niece is cool, right? Like, she's seven years old. Her name's Sydney. She was singing this song the last time we were hanging out right before dinner. I know what boys want. I know what boys like. Yeah, her dad was standing there. He's like, you do? <laughs> she was like, yeah. He's like, well, what do they want? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what do they want? Because I don't really know either. <laughs> she was like, Star Trek stuff. <laughs> so she's cool, right? But you can pick your friends, you, pick, you, can, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick the kid that shoots at your crotch hole. <laughs> so maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> also, the other day I was walking through this parquet. You know, I live right <laughs> like five minutes away, and I was walking through this parquet, and I was feeling weird, you know, like I uh, wanted to procreate. And there was, this, uh, <laughs> there was this hot dad pushing a toddler swing, already not good. Right? And then inside the toddler swing, you know these swings, like right leg, left leg swing gel? You're trapped. <laughs> it wasn't a toddler in one of these. It was two infants back to back, the cutest thing I ever saw. I was like, no. I grabbed my ovaries and I ran into the darkness. That <laughs> <laughs> was fucked. You guys are so, like, this show is so cool. It's like everyone's, like, really well written. And I was like, just trying to, I was trying to prepare <laughs> for my <laughs> set. And I was like, I have a joke, it's called psychological. And I was like, psych, I was like trying to spell it like psych, like while well, someone was saying like amazing words in a poem, I was like, <laughs> I was like the dumbest person ever, like leaning on the wall. Like good thing they don't see my notes. <laughs> Do you guys depression? Yeah, I guess I depression. I've, I've sort of known all my life, but I just finally got, like, a doctor said, yeah, okay. <laughs> they agreed with me. Um, I think it has to do with confidence issues. I think confidence issues also have to do with depression. Like, it's sort of secular like that. Stand-ups really helped me. Like, I think this past five years have been the first five years I've been able to make confident eye contact with people. I was in this grocery store the other day, and the thing about kids that's cool, that I'll admit, is uh, you know they have natural self-esteem. They don't judge themselves. They don't think twice about what they're doing. They're just themselves, right? As you're, you grow in past adolescence into adulthood, we have this like weird judgmental thing, right? And it fucks with you. But these two kids, they were so cool in the grocery store. One was chasing the other. She said, uh, went up to the other girl. She's like, you're the queen of fart blasting. The other girl was like, I know. <laughs> I'm the queen of everything. 
Oh my God. I was like in an aisle hiding behind the Alfredo sauce, spying on children. Like, she's so cool. <laughs> I had an orange in my hand, it dropped, it like rolled. I was like, fuck. I was like, don't move like the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park. They're like, what's that lady doing? Okay. Um. It's uh, just past the third year of uh, losing my mom in a Walmart Supercenter. Those stores are huge. <laughs> no, but seriously, she died. When she checked those prices, because of rollbacks, guys. <laughs> no, she is dead on. When it comes to bargain shopping, no, she did die of stomach cancer. and uh, It's fine. Like, I'm okay. Um, it's not fine, but... Um, what happens to you when you go through something like that? You go into shock, right? People want to be sweet, give their condolences. They usually say something like, I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. And you say something very robotic back, like, oh, she'll always be here with me. And they say sweet, like in your heart. And you say no, like right here. And you dump a bag of sand on them. <laughs> Funeral pranks. <laughs> Use them, guys. I smoke a lot of weed because she passed. Before that, I smoked weed because she was still alive. <laughs> Moms, am I right? They'll stress you out. Dead or alive. <laughs> she like Bon Jovi. <laughs> I smoke a lot of weed because she passed. Before that, I smoked weed because she was still alive. Moms, am I right? They'll stress you out. Dead or alive. <laughs> she like Bon Jovi. I smoke a lot of weed because she passed. Before that, I smoked weed because she was still alive. Mom's in, all right. Am I right? They'll stress you out. Oh, you guys are so cute. Dead or alive. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh my God. You guys are so fun. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for including me in the show, Cole. Have a great night, everyone. All right. Our final storyteller is the author of Davy Street Translations and Rom-Com with the wonderful Dina Del Bucchia. And Everything is Awful and You're a Terrible Person is his first collection of short stories, and it's fantastic. Here's the wonderful Daniel Zamparelli. Um, hello. Uh, I forgot everything I was going to say. I haven't read in like a year. Uh, for good reason. Um, just like tonight is a marriage of comedy and writing, um, I married a comedian. Uh, it's about nine months ago, and he um, finally let me leave the home. Um, also, a comedian marrying a poet is basically a murder uh, suicide pact. I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, I'm going to read from Everything is Awful and You're a Terrible Person. Uh, Publisher Weekly called it a bummer. Um, uh, some guy said it was so boring that he, if it was a play, he'd walk out. Um, this one, uh, this short story is uh, about a uh, sad gay monster. It's called Craig Has Very Nice Skin. My skin is fitting weirdly on my body today. I woke up this morning and it felt looser than usual. 
When I checked the mirror, I could see that there was extra skin drooping from my eyes, some folding around my butt, some gathered around my elbows. I usually have someone fix this. It would be very embarrassing if my skin were to just fall off. When I was young, my skin was too tight and everyone would notice. I would make up excuses like, I have an eating disorder or I'm just too big for my body. Now my excuses are, I'm too tired and I'm getting old. It's becoming harder and harder to keep my skin firmly covering my body. Taping my skin tight with duct tape only works under my clothes, and Botox only lasts for so long before my skin begins to loosen all around my face. Craig was coming over tonight, so I need to figure out the best way to quickly tighten up my skin. <laughs> I made several calls, but it was impossible to book an appointment. I decided to wear a hat that sat low on my head. I lined the hat with duct tape so that it would hold my forehead skin hot. Sorry, that always reads as foreskin in my head. Um, <laughs> I should write poetry. Um, Craig arrived early, which wasn't like him. He'd also been drinking. He came very close to my face for a kiss, then stopped. What's up with your forehead? You look surprised. I stared at him until he changed the subject. Craig has very nice skin. His body is the same age as my human coverings, but his perfect and, his, is perfect and fits tightly around all of his body. Let's go out, he grabbed my arm, but I pulled away. Why, I asked. Because you need to go out more and meet men. I don't like meeting men. I especially don't like the bar. It's filled with people, and they can't manage their space. I have my space, and they have their space, but at the bar, everyone wants to share space. I can feel them groping at my skin, feeling it loosen. There's this way humans take up space, like water in buckets or hair in sewage drains. Why, I asked. We're not staying in again. I've already had a couple of drinks, and I'm not wasting them on watching more episodes of The Blue Planet. <laughs> I thought about sitting and watching The Blue Planet with Craig. He'd ask me to sit closer, maybe say that he didn't mind my loose skin. I would lay my head on his chest, and maybe a bit of my skin would fall off, but he wouldn't care. And maybe some of my skin would slide down, and he'd think to himself how sexy it would be if I took off all of my skin. He would slowly uncoil it, and my body would actually breathe. I could relax. Sorry, it's hard to... <laughs> there we go. Let my fur and wings loosen. Craig grabbed my jacket and pulled me out the door. A cab arrived promptly. It was missing a headlight, and the left side of the car showed several scrapes. The driver of the cab was an older man. I slipped into the front seat. Your headlight is out. That's actually illegal, I said. Sir, you don't have to sit in the front seat, he responded. Also, you have scratches along the left side of your car. Is that from an accident or a bad parking job? Uh, no, some guy hit me. How can they be from someone hitting you if, you're, if they're long scratches? I would like you to drive safely, please. The cab driver stopped responding to my questions for the duration of the drive. The drive took 13 minutes. The car swerved, and I felt my body flail back and forth in the seat. He pulled up to the bar. Here's your money. I am not taping you because I felt uncomfortable, I added. I could see Craig waiting in the car and passed him a few extra dollars. When we entered the bar, the space was already filled with too many people. I decided to keep my jacket on in case we decide to leave early. Steve, you have to take your jacket off. You'll die of sweat in here. People don't die of sweat. They die of dehydration. Craig stared at me until I put my jacket in Kochek. Craig purchased me a drink. I sipped it slowly, knowing how quickly I can become too intoxicated. But then I started taking larger gulps until the drink was just ice and squeezed lemon. Craig motioned for us to take a seat on the open plush couches. Immediately, several men stood in front of us, their bodies blocking the rest of the club from view. I waved at them. Hello, excuse me, you are rather close to us. 
The music was too loud. Excuse me, you're getting rather close to us. The men's butts inched closer until they were directly in front of our faces. Craig seemed pleased by this. Look how tight those jeans are, Craig laughed. They're so fucking tight, I can see this guy's iPhone contact list. I'm going to go get us another drink, I excused myself. As I walked from the couch to the bar, I squeezed between men who, hands coincidentally, dropped to graze against my butt. I was thankful my jeans were sturdy enough to keep their hands from getting into my pants. The bartenders were shirtless, which meant it was after midnight. I ordered two more drinks, and they went down faster than the last. I started to forget about my skin. When I got back to Craig, there were several men surrounding him. I hesitated, but Craig noticed me and pulled me in. He began to introduce each one. This is Kyle. He works in law. This is Jeffrey. He's a doctor from Seattle. And this is Kareem. He's a scientist, I think. Nice to meet you, I stared intently at the foreheads of each of the men. Their skin fit so perfectly on their faces. You have very nice skin, I commented to one. I remember my skin and quickly finished my drink. Kyle looked at me. So what do you do, Steve? I'm an accountant, I said. Oh, do you like numbers? No, but it's a good salary. I'm very good at calculation. Kyle was staring at me. I was supposed to ask the next question. I noticed tattoos running down his bicep. There were thick lines interweaving. I noticed your tattoo. Is that a fish? Uh, no, it's more just a kind of abstract tribal tattoo. What does it mean? Uh, I guess it doesn't really mean anything. More just like a visual thing. Do you like it? No. Uh, I mean, no. I walked away, then walked back over to him. I'm sorry that I don't like your tattoos. I walked away and walked back to him. I mean that I don't like tattoos, not just your tattoos. I like your skin, though. I walked away. Craig gave me a shot of tequila and another drink. I forgot about my skin. I was dancing. Other people were dancing. A man danced with me, pressed against me. I like your hat, he said. Thank you. I purchased at a store, I replied. <laughs> I had to go to the bathroom, so I excused myself. When I returned, the man was dancing with someone else. Craig pulled me into a conversation with a man from Seattle. Steve, you're, we're trying to figure out if you're a bear. No, I'm not a bear. You're totally a bear. No, I assure you, I'm human like you. <laughs> Everyone started to laugh. I'd either made a joke or they were laughing at me. Obviously, but like, Jeffrey's a wolf and I'm more of an otter cub, but you're a total bear. No, I'm not. I felt myself becoming bothered. I'm quite obviously a human. Look at my human skin. Steve, you're hilarious. Weird, but totally fucking funny. Craig was drunk. My skin. I focused on my breathing. I could feel my skin sliding. If I focused long enough on my breathing, my skin wouldn't fall off. Why am I so funny? I responded. I don't know. You're just kind of weird, but like a good weird. I don't think I'm very funny or weird. I think maybe you are the funny and weird one. My skin. Maybe that's why you constantly have to jump from man to man to feel some sort of belonging, I yelled. Craig stopped laughing skin loosen. Maybe that's why you can't last in a relationship longer than a month and loosen. Maybe I could feel my skin want to start to slip off, but I couldn't stop it. That's why everyone talks about you the way they do. My skin was a loose pair of pants being held together by a thick belt. Maybe that's why you can't just stay home and watch the blue planet with me. My skin was so loose I could feel it flapping around. My hat was the only thing holding it together. Maybe if we just stayed home and watched the blue planet, we could fall in love and I wouldn't have to go to this place anymore. I felt my skin drop from my body. Dude, what's wrong with your skin? I ran quickly into the bathroom stall and tried to fix my face. My skin was drooping so low. I remembered to breathe. Breathe in, 
breathe out. If I could calm down, if I could get my skin back on just enough to quickly make it out of the club without anyone noticing. I looked in the mirror and it started to look manageable. I lowered my hat over my face to covering my eyes. For a moment though, I thought about letting it just fall altogether, walking out of the bathroom door without it. Maybe everyone would notice, or maybe they would all notice, uh, sorry, maybe everyone wouldn't notice, or maybe they would all notice and then be amazed at how beautiful I look without my skin. Maybe one man would walk up to me and say, I can't keep my eyes off you. Did you know that you're beautiful? Maybe he would kiss me and hold me and tell me that my skin was just a disgusting layer of flaking elastic bands covering beautiful flesh and fur. Maybe he would kiss my face, my chest, tell me that I was perfect with my flesh hanging out. I then imagined us walking out of the bar together and the men outside screaming at the sight of my body without skin. I pressed the folds of my skin closer to my eyeballs. I walked out of the bar. I couldn't find Craig. He must have left with someone. When I got home, I sat on the couch and turned on the blue planet. I watched as the birds dived and swooped and ate prey by gulping fish from, fish from cold blue water. I felt my wings itch. When the program ended, I went into my bathroom, pulled off my hat, took off my clothes, and stared into the mirror. After a moment, I pulled down the skin around my eyes and lifted it off my face. I pulled the skin down from my face to my chest. I pulled my skin down from my chest to my knees. I let the skin drop to the floor and stepped out of it. I called Craig and apologized. I scooped my wings around my face to block the mirror. Thank you. That is it. The show is now over. Thanks again to all the storytellers, Summering, the Lido for having us, Matt Crisco for recording us, No Fun Radio for playing us, and you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Summering's careful creators. Mm-hmm.